we'll enjoy having her here for the next several months anyway, so you can learn more about that as that time goes on. Okay, um, man, we're getting, we have a summer series that um, this is my first time to be here with you for uh, on the love of God, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, I did listen to the messages while I was gone, um, so obviously, man, Troy nailed it. It was really good. Um, well, go ahead, man, give it up. A lot of love for Debbie and Troy today. Okay, so, so good. Um, I'm, I'm going to travel more. It was awesome, and you guys won't suffer, but it'd be awesome. So, um, actually, the whole idea is the love of God is obviously a critically important subject. It's as vast as you can ever imagine and beyond that, and uh, we could never dive the depths of it in just the weeks of the summer, for example. But we do want to spend some time just reminding ourselves of our great God and his great love. And, and so Troy kicked it off, I know, with the very first mention of the word love in the Bible in Genesis 22, that famous story with Abraham and Isaac. And, and through that, we kind of set the stage and the backdrop for the different things that we'll look at coming through this next month and looking at this really, really important subject. So um, with that, let's just kind of cleanse our hearts and minds. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and, and we'll jump into it. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word today, and as we continue to attempt to understand your unfathomable love for us, and as we try and put that into context of what we call our love for you, I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts today. I pray that you will teach and guide and lead each of us to see ourselves in the mirror of your word and to be able to better understand exactly who you are and who we are as a result of who you are in us. So with these things before us, we're humbled and thankful and pray, anticipating great things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started off then, after that introduction, talking about the command of love, and the command of love certainly comes to us in the form of, and this is in your notes, the great commandment. The great commandment is typically referred to in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, and that's that place where the guy comes to Jesus and says, what's the great commandment? <laughs> the Bible's really hard to understand, right? What's the great commandment? And Jesus tells him. Well, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we put these things together, we understand that this is indeed the summary of all of what the Bible calls the law and the prophets. And, and what we saw was is that when the Bible refers to that term and your neighbor as yourself, um, that doesn't necessarily mean your next door neighbor where you live in your neighborhood, right? The guy with crabgrass or whatever. Uh, no, this is, this is whomever calls themselves a believer in Jesus Christ. Whether it was an Old Testament context with Israel or whether it's a New Testament context with the church, the idea is, is that we are to love one another. Uh, we are to love God with all our heart and soul, and we are to love one another. And that's what the Lord asks of us. It's a commandment, and since it's a commandment, it requires obedience. And we need to be obedient to the commands of the Lord. Why would the Lord command us something? if he didn't expect us to carry it out, right? And so the focus was kind of on John 13, 35, this command, right, I give to you, love one another as I've loved you. And so it is a command, and, and God's love for us then becomes the pattern. He sets the example. He's the one who loved us first, right? 1 John 4, 9, we love him because he first loved us. We wouldn't even understand 
who he is, we wouldn't understand how to love him. We wouldn't understand anything about him if he didn't love us first to the tune of revealing himself to us and doing that through his word as well as in many other ways. And so when he does that, what he does is he sets a pattern. And he sets a pattern of how we can show him our love for him. We love because he first loved. So that was the command of love. Today we're going to move into the next thing, and that is the cost of love. And that's the title of today's message, the cost of love. Now don't kid yourselves. Guys know this, right? I mean, everybody really knows this. Let me just speak to the guys. Love and free. (laughs) It'll cost you something. Every time. You remember back when you fell in love with your girlfriend or wife now and didn't that cost you something? Yeah. I'm not saying isn't it worth it. I'm saying didn't it cost you something? <laughs> now that I've been married 26 years and truly love my wife more than ever before, do you think it's cheaper? <laughs> I mean, this is not rocket science. There is a cost to love, right? So in the context of God's love for us, it most certainly cost him something. It most certainly did. Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ died in our place, paid the penalty that we could not possibly pay as a result of God's great love for us. He proved it. He commended. That means he proved it. He demonstrated it. He proved his love to you by dying. He didn't have to do that, by the way. He had no sin, and the wages of sin is death, right? He didn't have to die. We do. He doesn't, right? So here's what I want you to see today, and this is in your notes. If understood biblically, death is not something to be feared. If understood biblically, death is not something to be feared. We fear what we don't understand. But we can understand death in the life of a believer. And today, my prayer and hope is that we will understand it even better in the context of commending our love toward God. He commended his love toward us, but commending our love toward God. Now, death is an uncomfortable subject. I get it. But I think that that's only because society has so conditioned us to think of it in a secular way. We think of death as the end. But death is most certainly not the end, according to the Scripture. In fact, the word death is more appropriately defined as simply a separation. So physical death is the separation of your soul from your body. And the Bible defends that very clearly. And so anything that God creates, God breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life, and man became a living soul, And anything God creates is going to last forever. And your life is going to last forever, whether or not you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I just came back from a three-week trip to my other home, country of Albania, and we were involved in ministry, and then my wife and I had some time off. And during the time after the ministry was over, one of our family's dearest friends, a man who's actually visited this church at time and 44 years old, died of stomach cancer while we were there. 
left behind his wife and two boys, 15 and 10 years old. Now, we hear stories like that, and we think of it as a tragedy. And let me just tell you, it is going to be very difficult for the wife and for the boys continuing on, certainly. But if we really believe the Bible, we can't be sad, afraid, or upset for our dear brother, Aurel. We can't be. His life isn't over. You see, the moment last Sunday evening that he, his soul, separated from his cancer-riddled body, he was instantaneously in the glorious presence of Jesus, his Savior. Does anyone really, truly believe that Aurel is not really in a much better place now without any pain? Does anybody really think that he's not happy to be there? Do you think that he would rather stay there or come back with all the circumstances of life that we deal with and certainly that he dealt with with his illness? You know the answer to that. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 1, 21 to 23, for me to live is Christ and to die, well, that's gain. <laughs> that's gain. But if I live in the flesh, it's the fruit of my labor, yet what, sh what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. It's not just better. It's far better. And can I just tell you, this does not just apply to my friend Aurel, who was dying of stomach cancer and went through some pretty tough times at the end. This applies to every single born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Because for us, death is freedom from your life of sin and pain. And that's a very important piece of information for you to remember because now God is going to be asking some things from us. But he's not going to ask anything from us that he wasn't willing to pay first. He knows the way. So he's the one that can show us and lead us in that way. So then that leads us to the next thing in your notes, and that is what I'll call the great invitation. The great invitation is Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So first, Jesus Christ invites us to join him. He says, come unto me. And from the very beginning of creation, from the very moment that God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, God came down and had fellowship with them in the cool of the day. From the very beginning, God wanted man to join him. And when he invites us to join him, secondly, we see in these verses, that he invites us to join him in his work. The word is yoke. Take my yoke upon you. To take the yoke upon us, well, that means that we're going to get involved in a work together with Jesus Christ. If you are not aware of how two oxen work in a field yoked together, typically what happens is these two animals are tied together with this piece of wood across their necks, 
and then the plow is connected to the back and they pull together. Typically, the farmers would put together an older, more experienced oxen with a younger ox who does not yet know how to plow. And as the younger ox desires to, well, you know, smell something over here and go over there, the older ox stays the course and teaches and trains the younger how to do the work of turning up the soil. This is the picture that Jesus is giving. Take my yoke upon you, and as a result, well, for you, it's easy. (laughs) It's light. Because, well, the truth is, at the end of the day, Jesus is really doing all the work, isn't he? We're just in it with him. Therefore, if you'll do it, he says he'll have rest for your souls. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say rest for your bodies. Rest for your souls. That's what he said. So the work is light. Oh, it doesn't say free. It says light. So you've got to pay attention to the words. It's going to cost you something. And it's going to cost you the same thing that it cost him. Now, I'm not talking about physical death. We understand why he had to do what he did in that case, and we understand that we are sinners, and yes, physical death is a reality of physical life for all of us. But really what we're talking about today is complete and total surrender of our lives as we know them. But can I tell you, once you cross that line and once you finally surrender fully and totally to Jesus Christ and his work, I mean, it does get easy. It does get light. That one decision then answers all the other issues that appear before you afterwards. So the logic is clear. One, two, three. God provides for us free access to join him and his family by faith. That doesn't cost us anything. That's what cost him. But once we do that, he invites us to join him in his work. And well, that work is, well, that's the next thing in your notes. It's the Great Commission. You saw that coming. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. This is the work that Jesus Christ wants to train us in and teach us to do. It's a work that we cannot possibly do alone. We have to be yoked together with Jesus. It is a co-mission. In fact, on those instances, when you try and go it alone, you find you fail miserably. You find you can't pull it off. And the reason is there's a problem. The problem is you just keep getting in the way. What we need to do is, well, we need to die to ourselves. We need to fully surrender our will to God's will and let him lead us in his yoke, in his burden. Since it's a co-mission, well, then we're co-laborers. And this labor is a labor of love. It all goes back to the love of God. The question we need to consider ourselves is, Well, do you love God like that? I mean, does your life prove that you love God like that? Well, it can. It's just a matter of faith, right? It's just a matter of taking God's word, understanding it, and actually believing it to the point where you actually live in accordance with what it says. It's actually not that hard. But it's based on whether or not you actually have a love for God that's strong enough that you will commend your love towards him at such a level 
that you'll lay down your life just like he laid down his. That's what he's talking about. So in the service to this subject, and that's kind of a long introduction, we'll look at three things today. The first thing being God's love has requirements. God's love has requirements. So we saw back in Genesis chapter 22 that God's love caused him to act, right? I mean, that's, that's the picture of Abraham and Isaac as we unfolded that beautiful picture. And, and arguably the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16, For God so loved the lost, dying, sinful world that it caused him to act, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so God's love causes him to do something, and this action, this response to love, well, that whole dynamic is now passed on to us. In John chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, it says this, And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. Notice this, As my Father hath sent me. Even so send I you. And so where the Great Commission appears in each of the Gospels in the book of Acts, well, this would be the version that John records of the Great Commission. As the Father has sent me into all the world and to make disciples among whom you are, now I'm sending you to go and to do the very same thing. So what we see is, for example, is that as he loved... So are we to love. We saw that back in John 13, 35. As I loved you, you're supposed to go love each other. As he loved, so are we to love. But as he worked, so are we to work. As he worked, so are we to work. They're connected. Do you see how the love and the work are connected? So I just returned from Albania. Three weeks there. We had a nice time. It was an extended time. It caused me to actually have some time to be down and relax and just kind of reflect on my life and some of the experiences I've had. Now, my wife and I left Albania permanently 13 years ago this past June, and that's almost shocking for me to think about, but it's enough for me to recognize every time I go back now that life there changes and, well, I mean, we don't fully understand and comprehend anymore all of the details and the nuances and the difficulties of daily life in Albania like we used to when we used to live there. And as I was just thinking about some of these things, it caused me to consider some issues. I mean, there are seemingly endless grief and difficulties in the Albanian culture, typically always associated with arguments over politics. Imagine people doing that. And people sit around all day just arguing about politics and the problems in the country. And it caused me to think, you know, what, what really is the biggest single, if we could identify the single biggest problem in the country of Albania, what would it really be? You know, would it be the Socialist Party and the Democratic Party and all the different things that people do or don't do? Well, obviously the answer is that the true single greatest problem in that nation is People are unsaved. Uh, the the st statistic, you know, roughly statistic, the best we can probably ascertain is that there's probably only about one half of one percent. Think about that. One half of one percent of the population of Albania that are born-again Christians. 
one half of one percent. It's a lot of work to be done there. Um, well, okay. God is only concerned about, well, that main problem that, well, people are going to die, and without Jesus Christ, well, they're going to live forever, but not with Him. And so, okay, in order to be a part of the solution of that one main problem, who's best equipped to carry out that work to reach the 99.5% of the people who don't yet understand it? Well, certainly, it's the 0.5%. The 0.5% have to reach the 99.5% if they're going to do anything to put a dent in this problem. And Okay, well then you start breaking down everybody who calls themselves a Christian. I'm not trying to be critical, but I mean, look, the world is the world and people aren't all that different wherever you go in it. And of all these saved Albanians, 0.5%, how many of them actually understand true, good, solid biblical doctrine? How many of them are not confused with the issues of ritualistic religions like the Catholics and the Greek Orthodox or they're not confused with, with charismatic issues or Calvinistic issues and they really understand the scriptures properly. Well, now the number's getting narrower. We're asking how many of those people actually understand to study the scriptures. Not just read books about the Bible. Not just enjoy listening to Christian songs. We're talking about people who spend time studying the scriptures. How many of those now are left? How many of them really understand what the Great Commission is and what their responsibility is for personal evangelism and discipleship? Well, now, now we're really getting down. And if I'm just making up a number for the sake of argumentation, and I would say that this is probably fair, let's just say 10% of the 0.5% fit in that category of doctrinally sound, scripture-understanding believers. Well, in a tiny little country that it is, with less than 3 million total people, that's, that's one of those Bible believers for about 2,000 people. Well, that's a lot of work to be done. That would mean, of that 10% of the half a percent, well, wouldn't it be good if they understand how critically important it is that they're about that work? Wouldn't you say that if that group of people doesn't actually do the things that they have been privileged to understand properly and know to do, and we're, we're never going to get anything done for the Lord. And this is the thing that He asks us to do. And so my admonition to my friends over there would be, will you take your responsibility seriously? Okay, well now, I don't live there anymore. I live here now. So if we just laid out all those similar questions for us here, and we won't go down at long list, and I don't have stats for you, but at the end of the day, what's the difference for us here? Well, in essence, there is no difference, is there? The number one problem of mankind is they don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Everything else is superficial. That is the number one problem. And if we are among the great minority percentage of people that actually understand and believe the Scriptures accurately, and so many of you do, are we going to demonstrate our love toward God in such a manner that we're going to be all about getting it done? Are we going to take Jesus' yoke upon us and be a part of this solution? 
You see, the issue is the work of the Lord in the Great Commission is the single most important thing that you can invest your life in. You don't have to draw a salary from a church or a mission organization, but it should be the passion and the drive of all that you do. Please don't forget that Jesus Christ tells us in John 14, 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. And if you want to break them down, there's really only two. It's the great commandment, love me and love the neighbors. And it's the great commission, go and make disciples. That's all it is. And there's no difference for what we have in our context here than what anybody else does anywhere else. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation, to reconcile two warring parties, a holy God and a sinful man. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. You say, well, that's for the Christian ministers and leaders. Oh, no, if any man be in Christ. Is that you? Are you any man in Christ? Because if you're not, well, we have another invitation for you because Christ's great love is still extended to you. You can receive his free gift of eternal life today, and that would be wonderful. But so many of you already would understand that you have received that already. And he's talking to you. He's talking to me. God proved his love toward us. You're going to prove yours towards him? I mean, do you love God? Yes, of course. I'm here, aren't I? Of course. Well, it is easy to say, though, isn't it? I mean, it is easy to say. So nobody's asking you to raise your hand or nothing, but do you keep his commandments? I mean, do you? If you love me, keep my commandments. That's what he said. Well, in order to pull that off, you need to take Jesus' yoke and work together with him. And you might not even fully know how to do that. That's why he says, and learn of me. Right? So the root issue for your lives, even after salvation, what's the love of God? It's the love of God. It all boils down to that. And God's love, while it offers you a free invitation to eternal life, also then places consequently some requirements on you to be co-laborers with him to help others get the free gift of eternal life. You see that? But you also need to know, and this is our second point today, that your flesh gives resistance. Your flesh gives resistance, and that's just pretty clear. Listen, it's a fact. The flesh will always try to stop you from fulfilling God's purpose in your life. Every single time. The main battle for the believer in Jesus Christ is the flesh. It's a battle that never goes away. So in Romans 8 and verse 7, because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind is enmity, Against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot, cannot, cannot please God. And the devil knows it. 
And he wants you to operate in the power of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Paul said in Romans 7, I want to do the right things, but for some silly reason I can't seem to ever pull it off. Why is it? It's because of his flesh. It's because of our flesh. And when you first get saved, the number one battle that you have with your flesh, well, it deals with your old life. The habitual practices you had before you were saved that are clearly sinful in nature, those things still pull on you. And now you're a new creature after a day or a week or a month or some short period of time. You feel that pull back to your old life. And Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 4, where he says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life, notice how Peter puts it, the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries. I don't know your stories. I probably only know a few of your stories. But each of you consider your own story. And however it plays out for you is, well, praise God, it's how it played out for you. I know my story, and I was 21 years old when I got saved, and can I just tell you that in those short number of years, 21, okay, the truth is I really got the sin train cranked up in my teenage years. I mean, that does seem to be the time when it cranks up. And then so from my mid-teens up until 21, so let's just throw out about six years of my life, man, did I take advantage of that sin thing such that I can read this passage in 1 Peter 4 and say, after I get saved, man, enough. My past life was enough of all the revelings and banquetings and lying and cheating and all of the evil, sinful things that I did. I'm not saying I've never blown it since. I'm telling you that I've had my fill of all that stuff. That's what Peter is saying in chapter 4. The time past may suffice us. Why, Christian, would you want to continue in that foolishness after salvation? I can't understand. But when you say no to the past and when you begin to live a holy life, well, there's going to be a reaction from your pals in the world. And this is the last statement I didn't read yet from 1 Peter 4 wherein they, the others around you, think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. Have you ever noticed that? You ever notice when a new person gets saved and he begins to live a holy life and he begins to say no to sin and all that sort of thing? He doesn't necessarily need to, and I hope he doesn't necessarily shun his old friends, but his old friends are all of a sudden noticing. What do you mean you want to go out drinking with us anymore? What do you mean you don't want to go out chasing women anymore? What do you mean you don't want to steal stuff with us anymore? What do you mean you don't want to I'm saved, I don't want to do that anymore. And then they think it's weird. What's wrong with Jeff? 
Jesus freak, what's wrong with him? You know, whatever, they do what they do. They think it's weird. Well, that's what the Bible says will happen. So when that happens to you, just realize you're in the zone, man. You're in where you're supposed to be. That's how it works. Look, the truth of the matter is, if you're here today, it's most likely because you've already survived that test and you've already left behind a lot of the worldly temptations of your old life and you've begun a new life walking with Christ, but the flesh is still present. It doesn't go anywhere. It still desires to control your life today. Do you understand that? And by the way, the flesh is, does not really worry if you want to come to church. Come to church. Just let me be in charge. Read your Bible. Just let me be in charge. Go do churchy things with churchy people. I don't care as long as I, the flesh, am in charge. That's all the flesh cares about. Right? You act like you know what you're talking about, Jeff. Well, I've seen it. I've seen it over and over again. And sadly, I see it when I look in the mirror. Because it happens all the time. All the time. I'm going to give you one significant example and uh, when I began my missionary career it was in 1992 and then in about the year 2000 I came across a big event in my life and after eight years of ministry in the capital city it was the ministry was actually going really well we had finally purchased a building and the, moved the church into it and the church was really growing and many people were being discipled and trained and we had ordained deacons and we had a Bible school and we had small group ministries among cell group ministries among homes in the city. And, but the country itself was going through some really, really hard times. There was a civil war that broke out in 1997 due to some pyramid investment schemes that went upside down and raped the people of all their finances and 1999, some of you may remember the war in Kosovo. That's our northern borders. And there was genocide perpetrated from the Serbs against the ethnic Albanians. And those that weren't slaughtered came into our country. And the UN peacekeeping military forces, figure that out, I don't know how that works, but came in and tanks were driving up and down the boulevard of our city. And there was some big, big tough events that were going on, taking care of tens of thousands of displaced refugees, the bombing of the prime minister's office, and, and just craziness that was happening, total and ultimate anarchy in the streets. Life was hard. And our family endured much through those eight years, sacrificing and serving, and quite honestly, I was getting tired. I was just getting tired. And I got to the point where I kind of couldn't take it anymore. And I learned something. And uh, it kind of goes in line with what I believe to be an old Chinese proverb, and I put this in your notes. It's not the mountain ahead that wears you out, but the pebble in your shoe. In other words, while you're on a journey trying to get somewhere, there may be some giant trial in front of you, some giant mountain. That's typically not the thing that wears you out. You take that, you know, with, with grit, and you say, man, we're going we're gonna to buckle down, and we're going to work together, and we're going to get past that mountain. It's that pebble, it's that grain of sand that's in your shoe. And just every step you take after a while, just like, it's just with you every day. It's just that little nagging thing that no matter where you go and what you do, it just won't leave you alone. And after a while, you just sit down and take your shoe off and you're done walking. You're done walking. That pebble in your shoe, 
That's the flesh. That's the flesh. Just gnawing at you a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, every day. And that's what was working in me, man. In the year 2000, almost nobody knew about this. Certainly my wife knew. But I wanted to quit. I wanted to leave. It wasn't the wars. That was the mountain. It was the daily battles of life. Because daily life in 2000 in Tirana, Albania was, was hard. It seemed to me, this isn't far from complete accuracy, but it certainly seemed to me that everyone was corrupt. It seemed to me that everyone lied. It seemed to me that everyone stole from you. It took forever to get any official documents ever approved. We lived there for eight years, never had a vehicle. I'm not complaining, it's just true. After eight years, we finally saved up enough money to buy a car. I had it four months, it was stolen. There's no such thing as theft insurance in Albania. I mean, they don't just give away money. Everybody's car is stolen. I went to check in the police. How's my case going? They said, you don't even have a case. There's no file on you. Of course, the police probably stole the stinking thing for all I know. I don't know. <laughs> Life was hard every single day. It wasn't the Civil War. It was the pebble in the shoe. And I started to make excuses. And I used my family as an excuse. They deserve better. I mean, they shouldn't have to live through this. You know, real noble. The problem was, my family was okay. My wife was in the only home she ever knew, and my kids were in the only home they ever knew. I was the guy who was complaining. It was just me. It was my flesh. I was the one. See? I began to prepare arguments and reasons, things that I would tell the church. I began to set up, I mean, in my mind, I, even, I actually sat down and figured out how I could create a story that the local church in Tirana and my sending church from Alabama and all the people that sent money to support our ministry, they would all buy it and say, well, that sounds reasonable. And I, got, I figured it out. I was like, everybody's going to buy this. Oh, except one person. Jesus kind of knows it's a scam. And that bothered me. <laughs> because I knew that deep down this was not the will of God. This was the flesh of Jeff. That's what it was. I was mad. I was frustrated. I had a hard time. By the way, every week I'm up preaching. Every week we're making disciples. I mean, the ministry is going good. But I'm mad. And, and I was so frustrated with daily life. I'm going to confess to you, this is true. This is, I'm, I'm only telling you this because it's true. I was so mad at Albanians in general. I kind of wanted them to go to hell. And I know, that, I know that sounds terrible, and I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's true. And I'm only telling you because the flesh will do anything to get you to stop from doing what you know you're supposed to do. It will do anything, and it affects every single one of us. Every single one of us. I tell you that story that's a bit embarrassing because it's true it happened. It happened to me, and it can happen to you. And whatever the cir circumstances of life are, they can get to you too. You haven't yet escaped the reach of your flesh until we, like my friend Al Rail, leave it behind. Only then. 
You see, you have to understand the work of the flesh, warring against God's Spirit in your life, always desiring to try and keep you from fulfilling God's plan for your life. So that all that's left is you need to try and figure out how you can get victory in your life, and that's our last point, and we'll be wrapping this up. Number three, your victory requires release. It requires release. Surrender. Payment, if you will. There's a cost. So in my situation, I finally got the answer. It took a while, and the Lord was very gracious and very patient with me. And I found it in several places of the Scripture, and I'm just going to give you kind of an idea of a summary. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 says, We then, as workers together with him, and we learned now how we are all to be workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. So God has given you grace in your life so that you can be workers together with him. Don't make God look back and say, oh man, I wasted my grace on that guy. And then if you were to continue reading verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, it, it begins to lay out a life well of suffering, a life of paradoxes of a Christian that it seems this way, but it's this way, and it's kind of confusing, and it's hard. And it goes on into verses 8 and 9, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, and I want you to notice, as dying and behold, we live, as chastened and not killed. You see, the funny thing about God is this, don't paint God with a picture that he doesn't deserve. He doesn't desire your suffering. He does desire your surrender. And many times the one leads to the other. He desires your full surrender to him. And once you decide that you will surrender fully, well, that actually then causes more suffering because now I'm fully surrendered to the Spirit of God. I'm walking in the power and the direction as the Spirit leads me. Now the world, the flesh, and the devil have become a more apparent enemy. And well, I'm going to have opposition. I mean, just get ready. So victory requires release. Let it go. Open up your hand. Give it up. Quit holding on to whatever it is you're holding on to and hold so near and dear and give it all to the Lord. It will cost you something. It's the price you pay. So Jesus said to the Laodiceans after rebuking them of having nothing good going on in that church, in verse 18 of Revelation 3, I counsel thee to buy of me some things to solve your problems. You see, salvation is free, but if you want to grow, if you want to be effective, if you want to work, if you want to commend your love towards God, well, then you're going to have to buy some things from Jesus. It's going to cost you something. There's a cost for love. And your old nature says, hey, man, look around. This life is terrible. There's a great big world out there, and people are enjoying themselves, and Man, you can have a part of that too. I mean, it's not that bad, right? Well, that's the same mentality that Israel had back in Psalm chapter 73. And I'm going to read several verses, but just get the idea that 
Israelites had the same mindset that we often have. Psalm 73, starting in verse 3, where they said, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw and noticed the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. Man, they're doing good. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak lawfully. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is their knowledge in the Most High? They're mocking the Lord. Verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. What good is it doing me to live this holy, righteous life when the rest of the world is getting theirs? And it seems like I'm getting nothing. And there grows up in you this jealousy and this lust and this desire for the things of this world. And the psalmist is just being honest and saying what he's feeling until the Lord helps him get the right perspective in verse 17 where it says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I not their present, but their future, their end. And when I understood their end, regardless of what they're getting away with today, it ain't worth it, y'all. It ain't worth it. And you go home and you keep reading Psalm 73 from verse 18 to the end, and that psalm has got his heart right. He don't care anymore about what the wicked are getting and he ain't getting. Now he's focused on the Lord. See? He has finally surrendered. He has let go of his desire to get all that stuff. He's got a new perspective. Eternal things matter more than temporal things. See? You know that it's not that God doesn't want you to have them. He just wants you to love Him more than you love those things. He wants you to love Him more than you love yourself, by the way. And once you truly prove that you love Him more, well, then you know what? He's free to do amazing things in and through you far beyond that you could ever ask or think. So Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew 10, 37, where he says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy, than me, not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you demonstrate your life and live your life out in such a way that you show all of this excessive love for the people that you should be loving, by the way, your family members, for sure, to the point where you've excluded me out, well, you're... You're not really a disciple then. I mean, don't, who are you trying to kid? You're not a disciple. Because true disciples love the Lord more than even our most cherished human relationships. And there's no threat on your human relationships because the love of Christ causes you to give them more than enough love. It's not a conflict. So the cost of your love toward God is, well, it's everything. It costs you everything. 
It's death to self. You don't even exist anymore. That's why Paul says over and over again in the New Testament, things like Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. He didn't say I was crucified, by the way. He said I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not actually dead. <laughs> I'm just giving up on my life. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live by the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Although I got victory from the flesh today, tomorrow's coming. I'm going to need to get that victory again tomorrow. Colossians 3, 3, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's how he works every time, over and over. He loves you, and he wants to share life with you. And that is biblical fellowship with Jesus Christ. It requires surrender to what he wants for you. And it's only true surrender when you're truly okay with whatever it is that he has for you. You're no longer fighting for your rights for anything at all anymore. And in my life, I've experienced this near-death experience multiple times over and over and over again I'll just throw a couple of them out just to give you an idea so in 1992 when I was all jazzed and ready to go be a missionary and it was all coming together and the Lord was making his plan clear and you might think what a glorious time of your life that might have been well okay but I was also single and in my mind I was just sure that the Lord would give me a wife and then together we would go serve him wherever he wanted, in that order. I was just sure of it. But the Lord is the Lord. And he wants me to love him more than anything else. And he said, I'm going to give you the mission. Yeah, but what about the wife? And, and he's like, I, 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 I would have said to the Lord, I absolutely said to the Lord, I thought we had a deal. certainly you'd never be dumb enough to do something like that. <laughs> and the Lord clearly just said, yeah, well, that was your deal. Do you trust me? So I had to die to myself and what were holy desires and just say, all right, I am the new charter member of the Bachelor Till Rapture Club. <laughs> Let's do this thing. And so... All he wanted was surrender, get the surrender out of the way, and well, he took care of the rest. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I explained to you that whole trial in the year of 2000 I went through. Well, eventually, what was the answer? Well, it was, it was death to self. And, and once, I, once I did that, and man, I, the Lord you know, shook me, and I got back, and man, ministry started cranking. It was doing 2002 and 3 and 4, and it was going great. Well, come 2005, the Lord's like, I got a new assignment for you. It's time for you to leave here. It's like, I like it here now. <laughs> well, I had to learn to die to myself and say, it ain't about what you want. It didn't matter what other, my, my dear Christian friends that I loved and respected, leaders in my life, I, it didn't matter what they thought. It didn't matter what anybody thought. This is what the Lord needed me to do to surrender and to follow his plan. And so in 2006, he had us leave Albania and 
landed back in Atlanta, and I don't go into a lot of details, but I ended up having to go back and get a job in my old profession of mechanical engineering, and that was really hard. I was terrible at it. <laughs> engineering is just not a career that you skip out on for 15 years and jump right back in. While I was not engineering, the world went and invented the internet. <laughs> I was a little behind. Uh, life was miserable, and, and it wasn't getting better, and we could barely make ends meet, and, blah, 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 and all that to say, I had to die to myself. I had to say, Lord, well, if this isn't what I want, but if this is what you have, then I'll be an engineer in a glue factory, and we'll live 80-hour weeks in the suburbs of Atlanta. That's what we'll do, and once I surrendered that, then things began to change, and, you know, we ended up coming here at the end of 2008, and, well, since I've been here, there's been problems, and I don't need to run those down with you, but early on in the first few years, there was just attacks and troubles and things that made my flesh want to desire other things, and I had to die to those, and even just a couple of years ago, there were more attacks, and they were brutal, and makes my flesh want to desire other things. I have thought of some brilliant responses that I would have liked to have carried out, but... <laughs> The Lord says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Don't, you, you don't have a role in this. You don't, you don't get to call this one. Okay, I, this thing, why do I bring this up? What, what is the point? The point is it never stops. It never goes away. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> the problem with being a living sacrifice is that you keep crawling up out of the grave. That's the problem. So that's why Paul says he has to die daily. So, what's next for me? Who knows? I mean, who cares, really? What difference does it make? I'm dead. I don't even exist. I don't, I don't have a vote. doesn't matter. Whatever the Lord wants, that's what's next for me. How about this? What's next for you? What's next for you? You see, the issue is, you're always going to have challenges. I don't care what your circumstances are. I truly mean that in the nicest possible way in the sense it doesn't really matter what they are. I mean, it matters, but in the bigger picture, it doesn't matter because it only is whatever it is. And when you're done with that one, there'll be a different one, yep. right? You might as well just get used to it. You might as well just surrender. You might as well just die to yourself, right? Isn't that what it says? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ, notice the theme, constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live, that would be us, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? which you have of God, and ye are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your, in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You have been bought with a price. Your life does not belong to you. You don't have the right to make the call anymore. The cost of love is surrender. It's death. It's death to yourself. That's what it is. The life that demonstrates love for Jesus Christ. 
You remember in John 15 where Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He goes on, he says, you're my friends. And he was talking about himself. But isn't it cool where Jesus says we're his friends? Aren't you glad he laid down his life for his friends? Of course. Um, let's flip the script. Jesus is your friend, right? Greater love hath no man than this, that we lay down our lives for our friend. For our friend. That's what he's asking of us. You understand that? That's what he wants. It's the cost of love. Do you have that kind of love for God? Do you have that kind of love that allows you to function in such a way that you don't even take yourself into stock at all? You just listen for his word and his will, and he leads and takes care of you? That's what he wants. I'm going to wrap it up with this, Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord. Precious is the death of his saints. We're not just talking about physical death. When you surrender it all to the Lord, he says, ah, that's precious. That's precious. You know, you can do that. You can do that right now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are humbled and grateful.